everybody welcome to the snap no tap podcast i am joe cardinal tony cicchini is not able to join us this episode he's having internet problems but he insisted we go ahead without him so i'm going to fill in his shoes as far as doing our opening monologue um this is normally the part in the show where he uh comments on how good i look accurately uh but i will just note that 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 was taking place for the record um also this is where we plug our products of course tony in the city, uh, teaches a workshop at Jason Bender's Martial Arts and Fitness, and then out at the Western Burbs at DuPage Krav Maga. Uh, we will have links below if you are looking at this on YouTube, uh, so to keep updated on that. Also, check Tony's uh, website, catchwrestle.com, for updates on that. Um, if you can't make those workshops, first, let me recommend if you can train with Tony in person, that's the way to go. Um, the best way to learn these moves are to feel them put on by Tony. Uh, you can learn them from video, but you are missing a piece of it. So I encourage anybody who can travel and make it. If you can't make it to the workshops, uh, definitely have a time to come out and hang with Tony. Uh, he makes it very informal. You can come with the training partner. And besides the training opportunities in person, it's great just to hang out with him and hear his stories. If you've been listening to the podcast, you understand what we mean. Uh, that's kind of why we put this podcast together to kind of capture some of his stories, uh, at least partially, but also to talk with interesting people, which we'll be getting to. Um, and then, of course, if you can't swing that, um, think about downloading some videos, pay, uh, you know, buying videos from Tony's website. That always helps. And, of course, there's our monthly membership, which I said, again, links will be below. If you want to support the podcast, you like what we're doing, uh, you like the coach, uh, really helps keep supporting him doing what he's doing. So uh, without that, like I said, without Tony here, we're going to jump right into our guest, Professor James Donahue. I'm really excited to have him on the show. Uh, you know, we obviously are a martial arts centric podcast, but we have people from all different backgrounds necessarily at this point. Uh, we enjoy talking to people who are experts in any field um, or just people that we enjoy hanging out with. And I think in this case, uh, I think it's both. Honestly, I've really had the pleasure to meet uh, Professor Donahue. I took a class with him this semester, this past spring semester at the College of DuPage. And I want to give a shout out to you at College of DuPage, too. So I moved out to the Western Burbs in 2003 from the city. And one of the reasons why I stay out there is the College of DuPage. It's a great resource for anybody who's in the Western Burbs and wants to either you know, start their education or continue their education. I've just come across, across all kinds of great teachers there, all kinds of great curriculum. It's really at a high standard. Um, and I would, you know, I've considered moving back into the city uh, to be closer to my kids maybe, but then one of the things I realized I'd be giving up or I'd have to pay more is uh, going to College of DuPage, and that is definitely something in my calculus. So if you're out in that, the Western Burbs, I, I just want to give it a, a, a ringing endorsement. And as you'll find out, as we talk to uh, the professor here, um, you'll, you'll see why I really am uh, a big advocate of that school. 
Um, but yeah, so I, I took an anatomy and physiology course with the professor, and it was really one of the best classes I've ever taken. I think just in general, I think everybody should take anatomy and physiology. I think it's one of those classes that unfortunately is not required, but I kind of think of it as like an owner's manual. Like everybody should be more familiar with their body and how it operates. I think we make a lot of assumptions uh, based on kind of hearsay. And, and the more, one of the things I enjoyed about the class is that things would come up and you're like, oh, wait, you know, our blood isn't really blue when it returns back to, you know, when it's not oxygenated. There's always little things I heard as a kid about the body and you'd be, you'd be surprised you know, how many of those things stick with you. And you just, like I said, just vague misinformation that's out there about how the human body operates. And that is not a good way uh, to, to run your life as far as how your body operates. And there's just a lot of things that crossover. Obviously, if a lot of listeners out there are martial artists. Um, knowing about health and how your body works, we're all fitness uh, related. And you have to like follow the science. You want to know what how your body actually works. If you're going to keep it healthy, keep it fit and keep it safe. So anyways, that was a long intro. Um, anyways, Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. By the way, I think you look great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for endorsing it. So we have <laughs> independent <laughs> cooperation. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I, I want to straighten out. I see on your 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 you, your name you have Jamie down. Is it all right? If, do you want me to call you Jamie or Professor? It's very hard. That's fine with me. I was okay. named after both grandfathers, James and John, but mom wanted an Irish nickname, so... Everyone who knows me calls me Jamie. One of my uh, favorite cousins is Jamie, so that'll be good. Um, so maybe there's something right to in. the name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, thanks for making the time for coming on the show. Um, I think people, it's, you know, one of the things I really appreciate at your class and kind of your approach to teaching is on the first, the first lesson we had, the first class we had, you spent a good 20 or 30 minutes really just talking about yourself and giving an overview, and you really warmed up the class. And I think... Uh, really kind of it really facilitated and encouraged conversation that really opened the class. Maybe people were talking too much, I think, afterwards, but that's probably a good problem to have in a, in a classroom setting because I feel a lot of times people are probably nervous or a little uncomfortable and it's hard for them to open up and start engaging. And I think you did a great job of kind of breaking the ice with everybody. Um, and that was the first thing right away I noticed that was almost like a different approach. I mean, some teachers will do it to a small degree or they'll talk about what their, their educational background is, but you're really open about talking about your life. And, and that's part of why I brought you on too, is not just the, the subject matter expertise, but I think you have a really fascinating life that I think people will be interested to hear about. Um, but anyways, on that note, so where did, where did you grow up? I'm an army brat. So dad was in the military. And so my younger years, like through age six, I grew up in Texas and South Carolina. Uh, we were on army bases in Fort Sam Houston and Fort Jackson. And then when I was about turning six, my mom was pregnant with my youngest brother and we moved up here to Illinois. Uh, uh, Pontiac, if you know where Pontiac is, spent uh, maybe a year, year and a half in Pontiac. And then my parents in 74 bought a house in Morris, Illinois, and mom still lives there. Uh, same house, still at the bottom of the hill, and spent most of my life, if I guess, my young life in Illinois. Illinois. And now your father was in the military, but was he a doctor? Was that right? Or No. Dad got his education through the military. So he was a CRNA, a Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. Um, so no, he didn't get uh, a doctor's degree. Uh, he did the same. He, he joked about this. Uh, Dad died a couple of years ago, but he joked that 
he would do the same exact job as the anesthesiologist and get paid one tenth of the, what they got paid. <laughs> yeah, that is a well. I got to respect that job. That's one of those. Uh, yeah, that's so. Uh, you can't appreciate how the, the nuances. I imagine everybody's different, and every case you do, it's it's kind of like someone's life is on the line. And you know, if you get those uh, anesthesias wrong, so that is a an intense job. Uh, that's it was kind of neat to have him as a resource because, you know, when a question would come up that students would bring up and, hey, I heard that redheads need more anesthesia during a surgery. Is that true? So, you know, I, I, instead of looking it up, I'd talk to dad and he'd be like, uh, yeah, actually, they do do some research on that. And he'd, he'd give me a pathway to try to figure out why that was. So it was kind of neat to have him as a resource. That's awesome. Yeah, that definitely have that heritage there um, and have it in the family. Is that kind of what sparked your interest in the sciences? Probably, uh, again, unbeknownst to anyone who lives in their own house, what you talk about around the dinner table is not what everyone else talks about. So dad would come home, we'd talk about the surgeries he saw that day, and that was normal for us. Then when I got married, I tried to have those same conversations. My wife's like, I don't want to talk about this while we're eating. <laughs> this is what we do around the dinner table. So yeah, it was it was brought up a lot. Um, the hospital setting, you know, dad working a lot, as you can imagine, he's gone by six in the morning. He doesn't get home until after seven at night. And th those were the conversations we had because that's what he had just walked away from. Yeah. my So my in-laws are all nurses. And so they are definitely free to talk about things that I think would turn most people off. Um, and so, uh, but it is nice to kind of just be able to open about and, and honest and, and accepting about, hey, this is what the body does. <laughs> and this is what you need to do to take care of it. And this is what I see. So um, I, in some ways, I think it's healthy to uh, to broach those things, especially with kids and just have them, you know, open about their what their body does and what can happen. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, so, um, so, so most of your like schooling was in, in Illinois. Um, at what point did you decide to say, hey, I think this is the path I want to go down? Did you? My path was a mess. Um, as I as you brought up, I showed my, all my high school grades. Do you happen to recall what my high school grades were in science? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember they were that great. They were not. I was a C student. I was dead average. I was not intrigued by school at all. I had no pathway. It was the expectation that we were going to go to college. I have an older sister. I have a younger brother. Um, the expectation was that we were going to college, but neither of my parents had been to college. Again, dad got his education through the military. Mm. And when mom started, uh, in nursing school, she got pregnant. So she had to drop out and she became a mom. And so the, the expectation was college, but there was no direction. And unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of direction from my high school counselors. And so when my sister, who was the first to go to college, went to Augustana, I kind of thought that's what you were supposed to do. I never visited a single college. Uh, literally, my first day on campus was the first day we were dropped off for orientation. So you look at what kids do nowadays and they visit different colleges around the entire nation. And I didn't get that. And whether it was my fault, whether it was my parents' fault, whether it was the counselor's fault, it was just, we didn't know how to navigate that. So I ended up at Augustana simply because my sister went there. You know, it's interesting because I had a similar experience, um, except that didn't work out as well <laughs> for me. Oh. But uh, uh, but yeah, when you, you, people don't really appreciate when, you know, when you don't have people in your support system, whether it's your immediate family who've been through the process, there's a lot of, 
yeah, kind of things that if they haven't figured out the process, they don't know what to ask or do. You know, uh, my sister kind of figured it out on her own. She just, she was driven to go to, to school. And I kind of remember after I graduated high school without a plan. Well, I kind of had a quasi plan that was unrealistic, uh, but uh, it was not school related. And my mom kind of turned to me and said, so where are you going to college? And I said, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't apply to anything. I didn't, you know, I had no, she just assumed I was taking care of it, you know, that because my sister did, yep. you know, she hadn't gone and she didn't know the process. And, you know, uh, my wife had a similar experience where her, you know, her parents did not go to college and she didn't even take her ACT or SAT. She didn't know that, you know, it wasn't required at that time. And so she didn't. So yep. she ended up taking it after high school She's because they said, where's your scores when she tried to get into school? And uh, so it, it's, it's a lot of things that people just, you know, kind of assume is common knowledge. And that happens in a lot of realms in life, whether it's education or financial education that kids don't get. You know, if they don't have it at home, where are they going to get it? Uh, you know, yep. and uh, so, uh, yeah. So so you ended up at Augustana. I did with no direct direction i it, it seemed to me to be just a continuation of high school away from my parents um i didn't really have a major of any kind augustana is a liberal arts school so you take a little bit of everything so there was religion there was sociology there was science i had to take a bowling class i mean it was a pe class but you had to take something so i took bowling um and, and so there was fulfill the requirements but with no real goal in mind uh but at the end of my sophomore year, I had made a decision that, well, if I got to get a job someplace, I kind of want to do what my dad does because, well, I've got this resource. I've been kind of brought up in the hospital setting. And so I ended up going to nursing school down in Bloomington at Mennonite Community College, not Community, Mennonite College of Nursing. And that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. Literally, my first day on the hospital floor, I had a patient who had had a stroke. And so he was hemiplegic. And I was told to take care of him, make sure he can make it to the commode. Um, and we're, we're taught how to support people that are weak on one side. And so I followed up the instructions. This guy was a little on the heavy side. And I said, okay, you ready to go? We counted to three, one, two, three. He stood up and we both hit the ground. And because of his momentum, he ended up rolling underneath the bed. And so <laughs> while I am trying to figure out what do I do next, uh, one of the doctors walks in and just shakes his head and just, I can't believe this and walks out. And I'm like, this is day one. <laughs> this is, you know, and I, I tell my students at this time, you know, I, I'm on the floor at six o'clock. I don't get done until noon. Then I go to class until six o'clock. Then I work from seven until midnight. I was delivering pizzas at Michelaios and trying to figure out how in the world my body could do this at all. But I just, I kept doing it over and over and over. And I discovered that this, this really wasn't what I wanted. I, I knew that I wanted to be in sciences, partially because I understood the sciences and I liked the sciences, but I didn't know what to do with it. And so my sister, actually, when I'm trying to figure out what to do next, she says, why don't you teach? I said, okay. <laughs> that was a discussion. That That's it. That's why I teach. So it was no grand calling, no clouds parting? It was never, ever in my line of sight, um, would have never considered teaching ever, considering my experience with education was not wonderful. I, uh, well, okay, you know, I, I did a lot of high school theater, so I knew how to get up on stage and how to act and how to put on a performance. 
I did a lot of music in, in high school. So getting on the stage was not an issue for me, but that was the idea of, of learning all this material that, you know, I thought I knew everything at age 18 and 19 and 20 and discover how little you actually know, even at my age now, when I think I know a lot, I realize how little I actually know. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the theater uh, connection. So that's kind of similar from my son. So he was a theater kid in uh, high school. We have a really good uh, theater program out by us. And, um, you know, he, you know, had, you know, aspirations of being, you know, a big movie star and whatnot. Uh, but he ended up uh, through like a very like circuitous past finding education. And like you said, th that connection there of being comfortable in front of people and he did it and he's doing it in Thailand where it wasn't even his like native language. So the kids, you know, and I just can't imagine standing in front of a group, you know, of rowdy kids in another country, you know, but he was totally comfortable just, yeah, I can do this and no problem. And now he's actually teaching now. He, so he's teaching English originally, but now he basically kind of uh, uh, is heading like a theater program out there. So he's got all the kids acting and doing videos and things like that. And yeah, it's great. So it's kind of come full circle for him. But that, it, I guess my point being is that it, people uh, underestimate, uh, they underst underestimate the arts in general as far as its, its validity. But even theater, a lot of people are like, oh, that's a, you know, kind of, they assume they're just going to be an unemployed actor, you know, someone <laughs> who's going to be on the couch forever. But no, I mean, getting in front of people, whether you're in yep. business, giving a presentation or teaching, I mean, there's all kinds of applications. Um, it's a super important skill as far as being in front of people. And um, yeah, so that's awesome. Um, yeah, because I was also wondering, you know, with the, the amount of time and effort you put in to learn the human body, obviously all kinds of directions you could have gone with that career-wise. So it's interesting sure. to see that how, the, you know, and I, I was just thinking about it, like leading up to our talk about how, um, you know, in some ways, a lot of people think in terms of healthcare, and they, correctly so, is that it's a way of, you know, not only are you learning these things and having a career, but you are helping people and contributing. I mean, that's the kind of the big part of the draw of the job. But education is very much like that, too. It's another way of fulfilling that kind of giving back to society and kind of uh, uh, directly having an impact on people's lives uh, and society as a whole. So that's it's kind of cool. It's another direction people really need to think about, I think, and it should be out there more often. Agreed. And I'll, yeah, and just supporting teachers in general. I mean, I know I think that's uh, is given a lot of lip service, but I never, I don't think enough. Obviously, that you know, teachers in general um, are undervalued in our society. So, um, and I was going to ask you made an earlier comment about kind of, and now I guess you're on the opposite side. So you were a student, and you had kind of a certain perspective of like when you went in right into college, you just felt like a continuation of high school. And yep. kind of as I'm an older student, so like I started back, I waited way too long to get back into school, you know, after, oh man, I can't think of how long of a break where it's like, oh no, no, you know, cause I had my kind of career, I kind of fell into a career and was able to do on the job training and things like that. So formal education wasn't necessarily important. And now I really regret that I didn't just start earlier, just chipping away at it. Sure. Um, but, you know, better late than never. Um, but uh, the one thing, I guess my, what's your observation on like, as far as teaching those kids who just like go into college right out of high school and the maturity thing. And, you know, it seems like that could be kind of a negative working against them sometimes. Working at the college, you oftentimes get these, you know, kids right out of high school, <clears throat> excuse me, 18, 19 year olds, and they've had this pattern. They have a, an experience of how to learn. But now when you get these non-traditional students that are coming back and you see how much 
of the electronics are involved and navigating all of this through computers. I, I'm still a guy. I want to talk to the person face to face. I don't want to call somebody on a phone and do anything. I want to actually have a conversation with a person, not trying to navigate a computer. And it's, it might be my generation, but you look at these kids nowadays and everything's electronic and they're much better. They're much more savvy at navigating the electronics. If you get a non-traditional student, they may not be quite as savvy with that. And so you often have times, especially during COVID when everything was online, having to spend more time teaching them the electronic component of the class before you can even get to the content of the class. Hmm. So there is that component that we consider. And then there's also the just the learning styles and, and how they used to learn. They used to all be teacher was the sage on the stage. He stands up there. He tells you what you need to know. Just regurgitate what he tells you to know. And now we've got more to that. We, we've got more than just the memorization. We've got the application of that information. And sometimes the non-traditional students that haven't learned in a formal education setting don't necessarily have that skill yet, or at least maybe that skill is rusty and it needs to be worked out. And by the time they work it out, they may not have scored well enough on the first couple of exams and they're trying to work their way back up. So there is some of that. And I, I try my best not to make any assumptions. I've had some non-traditional students who are rock stars and I've had some um, 18, 19 year olds who struggle. So it's, it's never a one size fits all with education. So yeah, I fit into the non-traditional category, <laughs> non-traditional. Um, but you know, the other thing that kind of, so, and it's interesting because you're kind of, your teaching career kind of spans all these changes in technology. So I was yeah. kind of shocked when I went to my, the difference between my oldest son, the one who was in the theater and my mm -hmm. youngest son, because my youngest son uh, was in high school and smartphones had, had become ubiquitous. It was just everybody. And so it was just having like prior, even when my daughter, some my middle child's my daughter, they really didn't have to deal with kids just being on their phone all the time, like just having to deal with that. I, I, I couldn't imagine the the obstacles or like the hurdles and, and the difficulties of, and now it's funny that that even seems to be old news with that. So you've got things where basically, I mean, how do you, I guess it, it just as a curiosity, how do you manage kids keeping them off of their devices? Uh, or, or, or are you able to, or you just have to kind of accept that as part of what you're dealing with? In my undergraduate, when I was in education classes, we were taught that teachers needed to change what they were doing every seven and a half minutes. Hmm. So if you were teaching for seven and a half minutes, you would take a break, you would do something else. Uh, maybe it was a little more hands-on, maybe it was a video clip, maybe it was some images, but every seven and a half minutes, do you know why? Well, I'm sure it has something to do with the attention span, but is there some specifics? Because <laughs> every seven and a half minutes, TV went to commercial. Oh, okay. And that's when we would all run to the bathroom. And that's when we would all run upstairs and grab our drinks and our snacks and race back downstairs to make sure we didn't miss the beginning of friends because we couldn't pause like we can now. When you look at what today's kids are doing with technology and the research backs us up pretty firmly, they can find anything. If they don't like it, swipe. If they don't like it, swipe. They can find something to engage them in a fraction of a second without having to pause for very long at all. So their attention spans have gone from seven and a half minutes to a matter of seconds. And so to keep them engaged in some way, to keep them off of their phones, you kind of have to put on a show. I mean, you have to be more interesting than the electronic device. And that sometimes be very difficult in a topic that 
some students don't necessarily want to take. So you haven't mentioned that um, I actually, at my major jobs, I teach high school. And so I teach these, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade kiddos. And this year I taught freshmen for the first time in a long time. And I was shocked because usually my upperclassmen, they're really good at staying off their phones. But these freshmen, it was, it was, it was an uphill battle with these kiddos. And the school tries to give us tools, you know, create a, a bag so they can put their phones in the bag during class so that they can't access it or make sure all phones are put away in their backpacks, all backpacks are in the back of the room. These kids really struggle because that phone has become so much of the way their brain is wired. It's hard to be without it. Yeah, it becomes like a phantom limb or something where they're <laughs> they notice it's gone. Waiting for that next buzz. When's that next buzz? Yeah, I was wondering if they if it was, if you guys were allowed to just kind of have them put the phone somewhere else or collect them because I, I I just. I, my, so my daughter did a semester uh, abroad at uh, like exchange things in Germany, and it was just a given. You give up your, I can't remember if they all put them in a box or something, but it was like, you did not have your device. And I remembered, I was really surprised when that was not the case in my son's school. And the kids, the kids could just be kicking back, scrolling through their phone. I was like, man, if I had the temptation of YouTube or TikTok as a kid, I mean, I barely got an education as it was. I mean, I did okay. I was an okay student. I wasn't a complete slough. But man, I, I can't imagine the draw of that, you know, because TV was a distraction at home. But I can't imagine if I had access to video, you know, anything, basically any content I wanted right in my palm of my hand. I, I probably would have, you know, I don't know if I would have ever made it out of school. Um, that's, it's, it's. Think it's, about it's, how many hours we played video games. Exactly. Um, yeah, if I could play it just handheld, you know, <laughs> with the quality, I found like I always feel like I'm an old man complaining. Yeah, kids these days with their phones. But the other thing now, you got, have, you, have you come across? Have you had to deal with any um, AI issues? Like in the like people? No. no, that hasn't come up. So that's new on. That hasn't right. come across my table yet. That, that I look forward to that. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps happening. Oh man. Um. Yeah, that's that's a brave new world, uh, almost literally. Uh, so uh, scary. So one of the things that's kind of it's kind of come up in passing. You, you mentioned the schools you went to uh, were kind of religious schools, um, but uh, did you grow up uh, religious? We had kind of a joke in my family that I was baptized Catholic and I was confirmed Lutheran. I didn't even realize how Lutheran I was because I didn't realize that there were two denominations of being Lutheran. So I was just, you know, the church is the church. This is where you go. And then there was that split like sometime in the early 80s, I think. And I found out that we were a Missouri Synod Lutheran and there was another branch called Evangelical Lutheran Churches. And so when I met the woman who became my wife, I discovered there were two churches because we both said, hey, we're Lutheran. And she's like, well, I am not the same kind of Lutheran as you. I'm like, what does that mean? So it was one of those, I was raised in the church. I didn't really understand the church. I can recite so many things about the church. Um, and so coming out of high school and even going to a Lutheran school, it was, it was kind of the same thing. It was, I go to church because you're supposed to go to church and it wasn't really about the relationship of church. Kind of like cultural church, kind of a, yeah. 
Yeah, I grew up religion too. I grew up religion. I grew up uh, Lutheran too. So, and I believe it was Missouri Synod. So we were the right kind of Lutherans, I think, is the way we like to put it. Uh, <laughs> Very much uh, more like Catholics than we'd like to believe sometimes. Yeah, that was the other thing I used to say is a uh, Catholic light. You know, we had yep. it was very similar. Uh, we just didn't have the calisthenics. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I went through a phase, and I, I might have talked this on previous episodes, but like my father passed away when I was young, and so my mom kind of went on a religious quest and became very evangelical. So I kind of was all over the. She she went through all kinds of different, um, you know, uh, denominations and variations of Christianity. Uh, so I got a, a broad spectrum of exposure to those. Uh, but the, definitely the beginning was Lutheran with the catechism and learning the Apostles' Creed and, and yep. all those little things. Uh, so it's a good starting point. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, so and then you went to uh, uh, is Augustina a Lutheran school? Augustana is a private Lutheran Augustana. school, correct. OK, cool. And then so at what point did your uh, did it transition for you from being kind of just kind of a cultural educational aspect of your life to something more personal? You know, I, I, I used to joke about the fact that I'd go to different churches. And I did. I'd go to different churches of different denominations because I was usually trying to date a girl. <laughs> yeah. It's Churches where you can go to meet, meet them. It's, well, it's kind of a nice place to meet girls. Um, but again, when I met my wife, it became a little more real. Her family is much more firm in their religion and relationship in that faith than my family was. And I think her family is wonderful. And so... We got married in their church, so up in Northbrook. Uh, we got married at Gloria Day Lutheran Church and had a really good relationship with that church. We were living in um, Roselle at the time and driving to Northbrook on Sundays because my wife and I would sing in the praise team and got into more conversations where it became more than just rote memorization. It became more than just attend and leave. You know, you'd stick around for longer. You'd talk to the people. You started having these relationships. And it became more of a, a journey for me. And I think if I'm tracing it back right time-wise, I got into a, a Bible study. And there's a long road here, but I took a group of kids uh, to... DC um, for a Christian weekend, a week out up, um, in DC, and met this guy by the name of Francis Chan. I didn't know who this guy was. And it turns out Francis Chan is a very famous religious author and been pastor. And I, I'm just having conversations with this guy. I didn't know who he was. Like he probably wondered why I didn't ask for his autograph. And got home, and everyone's like, You met Francis Chan? I'm like, Yeah, who's Francis Chan? <laughs> And it turns out he's written all these books. And one of the first ones that became really big was one called Crazy Love. And a lot of people have done Bible studies on Crazy Love. And so I started looking up Francis Chan's sermons. And I found a series of sermons that Francis Chan did on Revelation. And I know that a lot of people really cringe about Revelation. And I'm like, well, okay, it is kind of scary, but there's got to be some promise in there that we can take away and say, well, why else would it be included in these biblical texts? And so he did week by week, chapter by chapter, the entire book of Revelation. And so what I did is I, I printed out the NIV version of Revelation, which is what he was teaching from, and left myself space on the margins for notes. And I had my headphones in and my break periods of teaching, and I would listen to a podcast of his preaching and I would take notes 
And the first time I went through this, I'm like, this is great. And the second time I went through it, I just kept adding more and more notes. The third time I went through I kept reading this thing and listening to this guy. And I'm like, there's more to this than just do the things you're supposed to do. It's not about being a good guy. It's not about being a good girl. There's, there's more to it. And then, and you haven't brought this up yet. Um, my family and I went to the Philippines to do missions work for a year in 2014. And I was asked to go to South Korea. And so I went to South Korea and there was an, uh, another guy that I met. So that's, it was Wilkins, John Wilkins, I think. And he wrote this book that was about the history of Christ, not looking at Jesus as a preacher necessarily, but if he was who he said he was, can we prove it based on history? Can we find these places? Can we find the well where the woman touches his robe? Because they describe it really well in the Bible, but they'd never found it. It ended up they had to look a couple of feet that way to find it. And there it was. They, they find these things. So for me, and I know this isn't necessarily the right way to go about it, if there is a right way, but if you can prove it historically that all of these things did happen, that helps support my faith and add more credence to all these things that I've been learning throughout my lifetime. So it's an interesting answer, I think, to your question, but it kind of leads me to this guy of science who needs the facts, who's trying to believe in a faith of things that helps me reconcile with that. Well, yeah, and I think that's kind of the, the natural question, and I promise you the listeners are thinking about here's, you know, you're very deep in the science and, and throughout the class, you're always hammering it home to us. Like, you know, where's the data? Where's, you know, is this pseudoscience, you know, and trying to yeah. get us to discern because there's so much quasi, you know, information out there. That's just, you know, especially like I said, when we have online information, there's all kinds of bad health advice coming out there about the body. And, um, and so you're just, you're very hard on like, here's, where's the data? What's the science? Is it from a reputable source? all these kind of things. And so someone who's uh, uh, a strong believer in uh, science, and actually, uh, you know, I'll mention uh, quite often, you point out uh, signs of evolution in the human body, you know, and, uh, and it's interesting, because I was just talking to one of my in-laws, who's uh, very spiritual, and she did go a little cross-eyed when I was trying to describe your story in the perspective. I was like, oh, no, he's very, yeah, evolution, absolutely. There's proof. We have hard evidence. You know, <laughs> life evolves. Humans have evolved. And she's like, but he's religious. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so I'm going to find out about that today. So how do you reconcile? Um, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot or whatever, but I, uh, you know, the, the six days of creation in the Bible versus what we know from, you know, uh, other methods of aging the earth and the fossil record and things like that. Well, my, my, I'll even call it a, an abbreviated depth into that i have heard other teachers say that when reading genesis that it's more of an allegory and to understand the bible in its context and who, who could read the bible who could understand written speech um these things played a role in what is included in the bible so to look at the six days is it six days? Is it six periods of time? Because people can understand days versus periods of time. Um, I did read, and I don't know if I can really back this up. This is this comes from, again, my in-law's church. This guy who did a study that proved mathematically that you could make six 
days equal thousands of years. And it has to do with physics. It has to do with Big Bang. It has to do with velocities and the speed of light. And I mean, it kind of, like you said, use the word, make me kind of go a little cross-eyed because it's a little more physics than I'm used to. But it's very interesting that the idea of the Big Bang could somehow parallel what God did when he created everything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I think, and I don't know, you know, for me, I've definitely come to a point where I don't take the Bible literally per se. And a lot of people I think need or want to or need to, it makes things easier in some ways. If you can, if you don't have to try and think about it in, in some kind of, you know, higher way or abstract way or where there's uh where there's gray area for interpretation but the reality is everybody's interpreting it you know there's no it's uh it's not even its its original language so there's there's already translation happening um but it is interesting yeah that some people have to cling to that like it's either it's all or nothing as far as like it's either absolutely literally what it said or it's nothing uh, and there's no in in between but i think a lot of people, and I think we've talked about this briefly uh, after class, is that, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people who, or I've heard of people too, who like once they get involved in the sciences or they get into the medical field, you know, uh, they lose their faith because, uh, you know, they once they kind of see the hard evidence of evolution, they can't reconcile that. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate that they feel that they have to, I suppose, in my mind. That, <laughs> uh, but I understand it too, you know, that if they've been told this is absolutely how it is, and I say, well, now I see concrete evidence to the contrary, you know, it's hard to kind of uh, um, do that. So it's 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 always interesting to me when people uh, live uh, in both worlds and are, are trying to be objective about it, you know, and and honest about it. Uh, and how they still keep uh, going forward. So, but it's interesting that you're, it's kind of sounds almost like your educational path, that it wasn't like, a, again, the sky parting analogy uh, or what I mentioned uh, with your just deciding to teach. It was it's just kind of an organic process of it becoming more personal because a lot of people have these salvation moments or whatever, whatever religion or or outlook they have in life or this or that event happened or, and then boom, it clicks for them. Uh, but yours are just kind of gradual over time making sense uh, that this is what it is. The more that I saw, the more that I experienced, the more that I learned, it just made sense. You know, I, I've got um, one of my pastors uh, said he had this analogy about a blender. He said, if you had a blender and you broke it into 13 parts, just unscrewed it, took it apart 13 parts, and you put it into a bag and you shook it up and you dumped it out, how many times would it end up being a blender? And our brains just kind of went, what is, what's this guy talking about? He's like, this, this is kind of what the theory of evolution is discussing is that you have all the pieces, but how do all the pieces come together to form this thing that needs to function? I mean, if you want to go into an anatomical example, um, you can even talk about silly concept here, but how does the sperm move? When you look at the tail, when you look at the flagellum of a sperm, it takes a number of proteins to make that work so it can propel itself through the female reproductive tract to find the egg. If any one of those proteins is missing, it doesn't work. That sperm can't find the egg. Creation doesn't happen. And yet all of them are there in the right place at the right time to create this outboard motor to propel this cell to create potentially another life. And does that happen just by accident? Or does that happen by some kind of design? That's why I challenge my students to keep looking into. You have to make a decision. It has to be your decision whether you think it's done by dumb luck or design. And it's what's weird to me is it's, I mean, 
you can see the, and I, I guess there's examples of the human body where it's like, oh, that's just something that's left over. And, you know, it's just, it doesn't seem like it, there's, um, you know, like why do men have nipples? Let's say <laughs> to pick another odd, like there's things it's like, if you're intelligently designing it, oh, there's like little flaws in the system where like, ooh, you know, if I was an engineer, would I design it that way? You know, or does, these are things that could, there's things, it's weird because in some ways, if you study science, it doesn't matter what science it is. You know, you could, if you study astronomy, you're going to be in awe of, of nature. You could be completely secular to, to my mind. And I think a lot of, you know, you could probably talk to some, I mean, there are people have believe or don't believe for various reasons, but I think, uh, you know, even a complete atheist science is in awe of creation and in nature, you know, they can see that there's, it is a marvelous thing, regardless of how you, you think it came about. Um, <laughs> And, you know, in, in actually taking the anatomy and physiology class, there was, there was multiple times when we were going through, I still think about just, you know, the, the function of skeletal muscle and how thought becomes movement. And there are dozens of steps that have to occur in, in a microsecond for it to work smoothly. And the fact that it works at all, and that's just obviously one small function that the body does. The body's doing all these other things simultaneously. You know, we're breathing while we're moving. Uh, so. there is kind of regardless of your religious outlook the more you learn about the more awe-inspiring you know and to me that's quasi-spiritual even if you're not if you're like I said completely secular uh the more you learn about nature and uh the world the more you've got to kind of be in awe of it um and so uh but yeah that's so that's just interesting so I uh that it's interesting to hear how you kind of keep those two uh, and are, are they constantly kind of is there back kind of a back and forth is it resolved or is there a tension is that kind of a dynamic process for you there's always tension someone's going to push back and bring up a question that i don't know the answer to and i tell my students this all the time i do not know everything please don't expect that i do and it, it takes me to the research again i have to look back and look into to try to figure out what direction at that statement uh, is leading and, and was it, you keep using the word quasi-science um, or quasi-faith, you know, we're, we're stuck kind of in the middle of those things. Uh, I, I like to put a lot of my support behind things that I can prove. Uh, you, you mentioned the whole concept of why do men have nipples? And this is, this could be answered through embryology. I mean, probably the coolest, most difficult class I took graduate level embryology and it, it does explain why we have these structures it's, it's not an overlooked oh wait the engineer messed up kind of thing it's actually there for a reason and you might wonder well, well guys can't breastfeed well yeah actually they could if they had the right hormones but because they can't get pregnant they don't have the right hormones therefore their milk glands don't develop the same way we have milk glands we could have been a girl or we're not and so the, the the study of the embryology and how that single cell became this baby is a really neat study. It's, it's going to challenge your brain. It's going to make you think about things in weird ways. Um, but to see that we can explain away some of these things that people say are vestigial, that, that's that term that you're looking for, vestigial organs, organs that are left over with no function, that they do actually have a function. Your appendix has a function. It doesn't have the same function as a rabbit because we don't eat as many plant foods as a rabbit does. But it still has a function. And if you're wondering, it makes white blood cells and helps keep your large intestine from getting too infected. Hmm. Excellent. So, um, and I was going to say too, as far as, do you think it's just, and I feel like this is becoming much more of a philosophical podcast all of a sudden. For, um, but uh, since I, I, I don't think, I think that's still, I think our listeners would enjoy it. Um, 
isn't the whole you think it's is it even right to pursue saying i need to have hard facts like i need to have the historical proof and the scientific proof when the whole idea is faith to begin with like you're it's part of it is is as uh, a belief in something you know like ultimately regardless of whatever your outlook is there are things like even science at a certain point will stop once if you try to say well who who started the big bang like science can prove all the way up to, but once you're like well, what goes beyond that there are certain questions that cannot be answered through the scientific method you know uh the, the whys or the what should i do kind of questions i mean maybe i i and granted i'm getting, getting quickly out of my depth here uh but and 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 so in some ways to have that faith of saying, okay, this is what science, I can accept everything that we can learn through the scientific method as this is the best we have as far as our best understanding of the physical universe. But there are certain questions that will never be within that realm. And so like, why do I need to, you know, is it even worth, like I said, I have faith that there is a creator or there isn't a creator that is, um, that's ultimately kind of a personal, you know, like I said, belief or faith thing, something that definitely you're not you're never going to find that proof and maybe that's a good thing like you know you're never going to find it, it's always going to be a a personal choice at some point and i think i have conversations in my car either with myself or with whoever else is listening and i giggle sometimes when we launch a new satellite and we find this new thing and how cool is this new thing that we've never seen before that's just it. We, we haven't seen it before. I, I think personally that God is up there laughing, saying, guess what I'm going to show you next because there's more out there and we keep discovering new things. And when we start talking about these big things, uh, astronomically, um, we can talk about the small things. I mean, think about what people used to think before there were microscopes. They didn't believe in germ theory. They didn't believe that bacteria caused disease. And that, of course, led to even more disease. So the more we discover, the more that we support the sciences, I think the more it reveals God's creativity and how amazing his creation is. Yeah, and like ultimately it's, you know, two people can look at the same thing and, and come away, you know, I think you can be in awe of it regardless of how you think its origin came about. That like, you know, that the the universe, whether it's the, at the, the macro or the micro level, is something to, to be kind of in awe of and inspired by. And uh, right. so... Uh, that's amazing. One thing I did want to touch on, and I thought it would be, it would have been an interesting topic for the coach to be. I'm going to kind of pivot here a little bit. Um, right. Was uh, the topic of pain? Because obviously, I said this is a a martial arts fitness oriented uh, podcast at times, and so mostly, I should say, not at times. And so, the topic of pain and what is pain? How do we perceive it? It came up very interesting. You had some very interesting perspectives for me in class, and I want to kind of talk about that. What is pain? What is, you know, what is the registering of damage to your body and how is that different from pain? One of the pivots I've had to do in the last couple of years is to reread the most recent research on pain. And most, not all, most physiologists won't even use the word pain anymore. They don't, they don't, don't, don't let's take that back. They don't talk about pain receptors anymore. They talk about nociceptors. And these nociceptors can sense damage to tissue. But if you think about this, this little kid who's swinging on a swing set and he falls off the swing set and parents freak out, like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Well, the, the kid's probably going to freak out. It's like, oh, okay. Or if the parents go, you all right? You got a little something on your knee, brush it off, go play. 
then maybe the kid responds differently. Sure, what was there tissue damage? Maybe. How does that child respond to that tissue damage? It might be a learned behavior. Um, some people sense pain differently than other people sense pain. Oftentimes, we don't even know that we have pain until we actually look at it and go, ow, I cut myself. What did that happen? Then I, <laughs> so pain is, it's subjective. A certain person can get a cut in a certain region. Another person get a cut in exactly the same region and they'll feel it differently. So this idea of nociception or the sensation of tissue damage that we then apply to pain, we look at that in the realm of treating people who say that they're in pain. So you're in the hospital and someone complains that they're in pain. You can find no reason for their pain. Do you give them pain relievers? As the healthcare professional, do you give this person who says they're in pain, pain relievers? And there is a strong movement now toward yes, you give them pain relievers, even though you can find them no reason for pain. And some people will say, well, wait a minute, aren't they just drug seeking? Maybe, or maybe they're really in pain. And how are you going to then treat this person for the pain that they say that they're in as you are the healthcare professional? So it, there, it's, it's, I don't wanna say necessarily that it's new research, but it's evolving research and talking about how we perceive this tissue damage. And what's interesting is, you know, one thing through our training is that over time, your tolerance to pain changes. So something that hurt you before, once you're exposed to it repeatedly, all of a sudden, because a lot of a lot of our techniques and tactics take advantage of people's reflexes to pain. So there's, um, but we also say, there's always like a caveat saying, well, this person may not respond because they don't feel the pain the same way you do. So it's not, or they may be on something. You know, if they're on, if, if the reason you're in a confrontation because they're on something, they're hopped up on something, they may not respond to a certain pain hold uh, the way you're expecting them to. So always be, you know, respect that. And it is interesting that, yeah, it is, like you said, subjective and individualized that you're not going to get, everybody's body's different in a lot of ways. Um, uh but it is interesting that certain holds that are put on for us, the first few times, it's it's kind of like your mind freaks out. There's a panic. Like you're, you're kind of, you start to go into kind of like the brainstem mode where you're not thinking about, and that's part of what we're trying to take advantage of is that um, we want the person not to be planning out what their next move is. We want them to be kind of just reflexively responding to something. But as repeated exposures happen, you start to be able to cope with it. And, and, and what is it that's changing that allows us, you know, is, are we just developing physical calluses, so to speak, or is there just kind of a, a mental conditioning saying, oh, this is okay, I'm not going to be, you know, this is just pain, I can tolerate this, um, you know, as opposed to being injured. Um, and it, it is interesting to see how that changes as we go through that process. Well, I think that certainly there's a, a psychological component to that. There is the I've been in this position before. I know what's going to happen. I know what to expect. That's certainly that that's going to play a role uh, from a psychological perspective. But there's also a physiological perspective where we have these natural painkillers in our body called endorphins and enkephalins that can, they're, they're opioids. They can actually relieve pain when the body is hurt, which is why when people who, I was talking to one of my students last night, she likes to run for four hours or sorry, four miles. I'm like, what? That's, that's unheard of for me. Four miles is what she's going for. I'm like, okay. And I said, you understand you're literally burning up your muscle tissue when you're doing that. 
And she says, but I feel good when I do it. I'm like, yeah, those are the endorphins. You're literally addicted to the opioids. And so now we're looking again, here we've got an athlete who goes to a hospital who needs anesthesia, but she's already got an addiction to the opioids that her body naturally produces. She may actually need more anesthesia to get her through that procedure. So that could tie into what you're discussing with your trainings. Interesting. So do you think it's kind of the body uh, more quickly begins to release those endorphins to say, okay, you've got to cope with, we're in the, we're in situation A, we know we're going to be dealing with some pain here. So it starts to buffer that for us. And I don't know if this, this, this term really applies here. I'm, I'm kind of going maybe out of my depth, as you had said, but they're, the brain works on what are called pattern generators. And when you do things over and over and over and over, your, your brain kind of expects that to happen. So when you guys are doing trainings, I've never been to one of your trainings. It sounds really cool. I assume that you repeat, <laughs> repeat, 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 not only to make sure that the person that's doing the attacking knows what they're doing, but also so the person that's receiving that attack knows how to respond to that attack. So I think that both sides, both the offense and the defense are learning from that and I don't want to say this, it's, it's not really a numbing because I don't think that you're numbing anything. I think you're just getting those pattern generators in your brain to recognize this is what happened. Here's then how I counter that. Um, I, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, there's the kind of, like I said, the, te- the technical way of countering, but there is also kind of the physiological uh, and like you said, psychological way of countering. Sometimes you, you, it's, you know, you're not going to get an immediate solution to it. If you're put into a certain problem, you might have to bear with it for X amount of time. And um, yeah, just being familiar with it um, helps. You say, okay, I've been here before. I've survived this. I know how to go through it. So it's, I think, yeah, absolutely. There's, whether you're on the defensive side, um, there's, there's definitely a, like a learning process as part of that too, and development uh, and conditioning kind of a uh we kind of talk about it as being pain conditioning um mm-hmm. just like you have cardiovascular or muscular conditioning uh you have to be ready you have to be conditioned for impact and for you know pressure and all these other things that uh, if, if someone's not used to it uh very quickly they can panic uh and you realize that the human body can handle a lot more uh than you know in modern life than we're, we're used to um so it is interesting to see how that kind of correlates to some of the things you're talking about um, but you're talking, and I was thinking about this too, about pain being at least partially learned, would you say, or we don't know, it's still evolving, I guess you said the research is understanding, because I mean, obviously, we, we, we witness animals respond to pain, you know, and, and are they learning pain as well as the theory? Or is that, I mean, is a certain, is it the reaction to the damage? Like, well, how's it different when an animal, is it, did they talk about that at all? And again, that's out of my depth. I am a human anatomy <laughs> guy. I can make some hypotheses and, and say that, sure, when there's tissue damage, that there are chemicals that are released. Those chemicals can cause discomfort um, to let you know, hey, you might want to stop doing that because this is causing damage to your tissues. It's causing damage to your body. But I, I've never done the animal research to back up anything like that. Okay. Because that's always to me the comparison. And, and I, animals do learn too. Of course, they're learning as well as we are. Uh, but, um, and I think we've all seen it, like you mentioned with kids, that if you, if the parents freak out and panic, the kids will learn from that and, and it'll kind of snowball out of control. Um, so you're always trying to like, 
at least when I, because I'm dealing with my nephews now, we had them wipe out a couple of times in the last week. <laughs> and you're just like, there's your initial reaction is to be like, freak yourself. And you're like, oh, take a moment, take a breath and calm down because they're going to see you freaking out. Yep. And uh, that definitely, um, definitely can be passed on. So uh, it definitely helps uh, chill out the situation when you see that. Um, trying to think what else to talk about here. Normally, I really would have liked to have you meet Tony because I think it would have been really interesting to talk about your perspective on uh, the human anatomy and his on, on physical training and kind of have you guys compare notes. But he's not here, unfortunately. Um, what other things? Yeah, I think. Well, actually, I want to talk a little bit about your music. So okay. one of the things we didn't talk on. So when did you what kind of music did you get into? When did you get into music? I would say from birth, um, always been around music. I mean, music of all kinds. Mom was always, I mean, eight track tapes, reel to reels, everything was playing in the household. Um, and it just, it was always around. Music was always around. My uncle was, my dad, sorry, excuse me, my mom's brother was in high school musics. Uh, he was in their show choir. He played first trumpet. You know, he was a, a choir guy. He was always singing. And so when I got into high school, I mean, I did it in middle school too, but middle school is just kind of a feeling out area. But when I got into high school, um, I didn't even join the, the choirs until sophomore year, but I played in the band. I played trumpet and just learning music. Um, my junior year, late se or early senior year, my stepbrother wanted to get together a band. He wanted to put together a band. And my dad lived just outside uh, the city limits. And so we used to play in the garage. You know, we... Uh, his drum set, I got keyboards. Um, we got a couple of guys, um, got my stepbrother's best friends. They played guitar. So we would literally play in the garage. We were a literal garage band. We had the cops call on us so often. It was ridiculous. <laughs> we're like, we're in the country, for goodness sakes. Why are you calling the police on us? Um, we played some gigs as some young kids. We went to, you know, to Ottawa. We play this place and uh, multiple times we we played at the high school one time to close off a football game that was kind of cool that they had a little dance after a football game that was probably our our big thing that we did for the high school um and then when I went to college that kind of fell apart and I the first week during orientation at college uh, a band got up on stage and started playing it was just you know it was just a bunch of freshmen and these guys got up on stage and they were welcoming the freshmen and they were playing a song by night ranger called don't tell me you love me and as i'm going i know this song we used to play this song and uh i'm listening to these guys i'm like but they don't have keyboards i'm watching them like they don't have anyone playing keyboards and so i stuck around after the gig was over and i talked to them i said why why didn't you have anybody play keyboards like well we don't have anybody play keyboards i'm like i play keyboards <laughs> and so i got together with these guys um this band never had a name kind of funny we were together for like three years we never had a name one of the coolest gigs i ever did we got a gig on mississippi river uh playing a riverboat for one of the college parties and so we were uh going up and down the mississippi river for uh, a saturday evening that was a, just a really cool experience to do and uh then of course that band fell apart with graduations and things they were older than me so they graduated and left and met my wife who is a very very talented singer and we were on i mentioned earlier praise teams at our churches and we were now going to church in yorkville and we got a phone call from one of the guys that worked at the church he said there's a, a contemporary christian band coming to aurora but their opening band dropped out 
do you know anybody who can sing? And this guy called our house and said, hey, you guys want to open up for Remedy Drive? We're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we got together, we threw together a band and we played a couple of songs to open up this contemporary Christian music uh, group. And then a year later, uh, we were asked to do our own gig. And so we had a three hour slot and we got the, the, the Christian band back together. We did a couple secular songs, but it was, it was mostly a, a Christian focused kind of a, a band. At the same time, my stepbrother calls up and says, hey, we're getting the band back together. What? So I'm singing, you know, Christian music over here. I'm singing Ozzy Osbourne over here. I'm, like, I'm getting so confused about what I'm singing. Little Jewish priest over here, little Matthew West over here. It's like, whoa, okay. Um, but it, it's it's just fun. I, I joke with the idea that I don't play keyboards. I play with keyboards. I don't play guitar. I play with a guitar. I've never been trained. I've never had music classes. Oh, really? Interesting. Just, I, oh no, I, I just I just play. I play. Um, I'm usually a lead singer. I. I call myself a bar singer. I would not definitely be on America's Greatest Talent of any kind, but I like to sing. And I'm again, I'm not afraid to get up on stage and make a fool out of myself if that's what it takes. That's an important, that's a key factor, for, especially in rock music. You just want to be up there and be a fool. Uh, that's how I, I never sing. wore those pants. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you basically got a scientist, metal singer, Christian. I like that dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> I cover a lot of pages, I think. Um, yeah, so that's interesting because I was going to ask, what in instrument did you get into first? Kind of dialing back, was it the keyboards? Uh, probably piano. I think I had lessons for about half a year when I was in second grade, and I got bored because I didn't want to practice. And then junior high, um, when it came time to start band, uh, because again my uncle played trumpet, I said, "Hey, I want to play trumpet," and so I started with that and went back. Uh, when Van Halen came out with 1984, they of course had a song called Jump, and that was all keyboards. I'm like, I want to learn that. So I sat at my mom's computer, sorry, not computer, uh, piano with my Walkman, my tape player, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play to figure out how to play that song. And that kind of got me back into learning how to play the songs on piano. So if I can listen to it, now it's a lot easier with electronics. I can usually play it on the keyboards. Interesting. That's kind of an interesting drill to go through. Um, I'm like the exact opposite. Like I need it spelled out for me. I need to be educated. Explain to me, like, I don't have an instinct for it. I mean, I love music and, sure. but you know, you put a guitar in front of me, it, it, it looks like the inside, like I said, of a, of a car or a computer. Or like, I was like, I, this makes no sense to me. Some people immediately seem to be able to just look at what a guitarist is doing and understand what they're doing as far as forming yeah. a chord. Like I need someone to lay it out. Exactly. You know, you put your finger here, you strum this way. And you know, I have to practice it very deliberately. Uh, so I'm always kind of in awe of people who have somehow learned just by like willing to play with it, play with it and figure it out. And, and just, I'm with like, you with guitar. Uh, I, I'm the same way with guitar. I have to, I've tried to learn guitar by online stuff, by just having people try to, you know, my, my bandmates telling me this is what you got to do. I'm like, I, I can learn the chord progression, but can't apply it to anything else. So transpose that to piano piano to me makes perfect sense piano i can do anything with i mean i shouldn't say that i'm not a pianist of any kind like i said i can understand the methodology of playing the piano much better than i can the methodology of playing my guitar or playing my ukulele yeah yeah and it seems like piano is ground zero for a lot of like western music like if you can understand that you can take that anywhere uh to, to transpose it to other instruments it's kind of interesting your story is very much uh, very much like one of my other nephews he um uh would always sit at 
the piano and would play, figure things out. He'd sit, spend tons of time just listening to songs and trying to figure it mm -hmm. out on his own. The minute his parents would try to give him a lesson, he would just disappear. <laughs> no way. I don't want don't to have want any it. lessons or nope. at, at that point it becomes homework and work. And I, that, that doesn't sound like fun. So he was out of it, but he's actually still making music. So he's actually, that's his, his, uh, uh, mode of employment right now so he it was it's just like it was just part of him you know so it's very cool i think he did take some uh initial guitar lessons too when he was like about middle school age he took it for a while uh and he lost he told me recently he he actually had uh he was actually writing music even back then like he said he, he he'd thrown them out at some point he really regrets it but he had some initial songs where he was just trying to figure out put the notes here and this is what i want to do even before he really understood had any idea about music theory or how to write it down he was writing sure. songs so it definitely was a part of his dna um from very early on um that was super cool i want to circle back to your teaching and kind of talk about teaching more in, in uh general uh, and kind of like what are some of your philosophies or ideas of how to approach teaching how to engage a class um those kind of ideas I had the unfortunate realization that this year will be my 30th year of teaching in <laughs> education. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of reflection going on in, in, in what I've done in those years. And one of the things I think that I really hang my head on is I want you to want to come back tomorrow. I want to have taught you something that makes you want to think, and what's he going to teach me tomorrow? And I think that if I can get you to want to come back, I can hopefully spark more interest in learning the topics that we're learning. Not necessarily because I tell a cool story or I made a fool out of myself, uh, uh, something silly to do, so what I call it, my, my dog and pony show. Um, but because there, there's something in there about the how the human body works, because I find it to be absolutely freaking amazing how the human body works. And to put all those pieces together to function, I mean, you gave the example of just how muscle works, how the nervous system works with muscles to give any kind of coordinated muscle movement is insane. And then what happens when things go sideways, when one of those steps is out of place, now look at how the body is reacting and how it doesn't work the same way it used to. To me, that's, that's, that's the meat and potatoes. Um, but you have to get the students engaged. You have to get them to buy into it. And that's one of the reasons why I do, you said about 20 minutes, that presentation I do the very first day about who this guy is and why I have any qualifications to stand up in front of you and teach you anything is, is to open myself up and say, hey, this has been my path. It has not been a smooth path. I was not the A high school student. I wasn't even the A undergraduate student. It wasn't until graduate school that I kind of figured out how to learn and figure out what I wanted to learn because I actually wanted to learn it. And so when I was 10 years into teaching, I actually went back to school. You talked about being a non-traditional student. I was the oldest person in my class in graduate school by a lot. And so I'd gone back to school to get my master's degree. Now, most of my educational uh, peers had gone back to school to get their master's degree in education. I didn't want my master's degree in education. I wanted my master's degree in a topic my students could use. And so I went back to get my master's in anatomy and physiology. And it turned out there were only three schools in the nation at that time that offered a master's degree in anatomy and phys, and one of them happened to be Northern Illinois University. And so that's, that's what I was doing. The school I was teaching at gave me a year leave of absence to do a two-year program. Oh, and so I had to take summer, fall, spring, 
summer, then find out that I had some other classes that I had to take from undergraduate that I had never taken, like 100 level physics, um, and get that degree so that those questions my students were asking me, I could answer with more validity. Um, cause they want, once you, once they start buying into it, they'll ask you anything. I've gotten some crazy questions about the human body. And for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty confident with my answers. And if I don't know them, I also want them to know, I don't know everything. I, I don't know that answer, but here's what I think. Here's where you might be able to find some more information. And so to be real to students, to not just be that guy who stands up there giving a lecture for three hours. I think that that's an important perspective because you know how I start every single class. Any questions? And I, when I say any questions, I mean any questions. Now, the college students don't buy into that as much as the high school students do. And the high school students think it's a waste of time. Oh, he's just going to answer some crazy questions. But when they walk away, I get feedback from them that's like, that was my favorite part of the day. That made me want to come back. And so now I've got you wanting to be in my class. I've got you perhaps engaging in my class. And maybe along the way, you're picking up the information that I'm hoping to pick up. Hmm. Excellent. Well, it definitely worked for me. Like I actually had that vibe of it was, uh, I enjoyed coming back to class. I was, I was looking forward to whatever we were going to c cover. Um, you know, because I've, I've had the spectrum of teachers. I think everybody has, you know, and I think oh, yeah. people just literally, um, which is unfortunate when you see teaching done well, it kind of, uh, it's exciting, but it's also when you think about, gosh, if I had other topics would, would have been broached this way, who knows, yep. who knows what uh, could have come, uh, could have happened with that, but um, definitely. So it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective and definitely works to keep people engaged. It's like, what am, what's the, what is the fact I'm going to get now or the interesting perspective I'm going to get this time? Um, it, it definitely kind of inspired because the class was a lot of work, um, you yep. know, and I'm only halfway through. <laughs> so I'm looking for a part two, uh, but uh, it definitely, uh, uh, I mean, either way, I would have wanted to do the work. And it was a subject I wanted to know. Uh, but regardless, it still was not. Uh, I think that would be, a, 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 I guess it's kind of a compliment saying, that a lot of, regardless of class, a lot of times it's in, in like we have this for workouts too, where it's just like, oh man, I'd rather just not go tonight. <laughs> I'd rather just chill out or, you know, I just got done with work. Uh, so to actually have a class where it's like, no, I, I you know, this is, um, uh, yeah, I'm going to get something out of this and I'm looking forward to what I'm going to be able to get out of this each night. So I was actually, yeah, like when there were times when um, there was going to be some scheduling conflict and I was actually pretty f upset about it because I was like, oh, what I'm, you know, because sometimes you just don't know what you're missing, you know, and so putting in the, the quantity time in that class is very important. And it was definitely something I looked forward to. So I think you're definitely achieving that, uh, that goal. So thank you. And, and I think, and that's why I want to invite you on this. One of the reasons why I want to invite you on this podcast, I think uh, really engaging, a lot of interesting, like I said, you've got a very diverse, uh, you know, background and interesting life to, to share. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can have you back sometime uh, when coach is available. I think, you know, down the road, revisit that. I think you'll enjoy listening to this podcast and it'll probably spark questions on his mind. Uh, but I know you're super busy. You're going to start teaching again. It's, it just starts right back up yep. for you. So uh, but it's great. Uh, keep on doing the good work. Obviously, uh, you know, each generation, but teachers, again, it's, it's like healthcare providers and teachers, uh, but you're a teacher of healthcare providers. So <laughs> you got the double <laughs> true. true. So, but uh, thank you for making the time for joining. Um, it was really cool talking to you again, and hopefully we will stay in touch. And um, yeah, thanks again. Thanks for having me, Joe.
Thank you.